All right, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Here in the conference center, there's ushers coming down front who will just give you a copy, so lift your hands up. Matthew 5, I think is page 525 in those Bibles right there, so that makes it easier for you. Keep them up high. If you've been with us for the last several weeks, you know we're in a series called Scandalous. Um, some have, uh, have called him the hard sayings of Jesus. We were talking in the back. This, these sayings of Jesus aren't necessarily that complicated to figure out. They just confront. I mean, they're just so confrontational to sin and the nature of sin and who we are as people. And so Jesus says things that are difficult to swallow, not difficult to discern. Get it? So they're scandalous in the sense of what they confront. And, and I would say of all the commandments that Jesus gave, one of the most powerful testimony commands to, vault, to obey is the one we're looking at today. Love your enemy. Nothing speaks more that you live for something other than yourself than to love people who don't love you. Fair? It's a scandalous thought to treat those who persecute you or make life miserable for you with the love and the kindness of, of God. And it's found here in Matthew 5, and it's 43 through 48. It's one of the rare commandments that aren't how you act, but how you react. There is, uh, I suppose there's a level of of preemptiveness to this command. You got to think your way through it, but ultimately it's expressed after someone hurts you or warns you or offends you. You're supposed to react with love. And so it's a powerful command that Jesus gives. And let's face it, let's just be honest right up front. Most Christians aren't immune to the hatred of enemies, are we? Fair? Most of us have somewhere, at least in our mind, a someone or someones or people or types that we go, I prefer not to be with those. And some could say, and it might be argued, that Christians don't do any better at this topic than anybody who doesn't know Christ at all. Because it's so like man. There are stereotypes of people that we struggle with. I made a list of them. Um, The vile unbeliever is hard for us. And I have to say it that way because it never bothers you until someone struggles with or fails in a sin that's on your I would never do list. Right? The gory, I I would never do that. And suddenly now they move from a category of average to really weird. Right? And really odd and somehow dangerous, and so they've committed the sin you would never do, and they go on some, some keep-it-in-your-mind perspective. Perpetual strugglers are hard for believers. You invest in someone, you think they know better, you're convinced they know better, and they keep failing over and over again, and you wear out, and you go, you know what? The only way I can respond to you is call you an unbeliever, and, and I don't even like you because I've wasted so much time on you. And so we struggle with perpetual strugglers. Uh, We struggle with the political differences, you know, the ones that are decided by which news channel you watch, you know. Believers are good at uh, picking sides and stuff like that. Doctrinal differences are clearly places where Christians draw lines. You're in, you're out, you're good, you're bad, right? You're right, you're wrong. And we we decide, um, in essence, cut me slack, you might never say verbally they're my enemy, but your behavior doesn't treat them as a neighbor. 
this passage is scandalous because Jesus confronts those things. And everybody of us, every one of us have this uh, very common to man enemy list. The people who hurt me and the people who hurt the ones I love. Like they're, it's personal. Fair? So there's this list of folks that are not that personal, the list of folks that are very personal, and we struggle with both of them. And let's just be honest with ourselves. This is probably one of those commands that are harder to get our brain around than almost any other because we are so wired for self-defense. We're so wired for personal justice. Our pride and our competitive spirits divide these things and make lines, right? Would you agree, church? That happens to us. I had a guy just in the last service walk out, and he goes, and he's probably in his 70s or 80s, and this is what confirmed in me that I'm right. It doesn't ever go away. He's a godly man, a Christian man. He goes, but in my flesh, I'm extremely competitive. And I'm, I'm thinking, you're 80 years old. Why? But he's being honest. Like, that's still my deal. And it's in us. I, I've got a story to kind of illustrate what's in us. And you'll laugh probably, um, but it's, it's a great illustration. There are two shopkeepers. And they do the same business. And they work across the street from each other. And they spend their days in the midst of trying to make money and make sales looking across the street and measuring the other guy. And when one makes a sale, he kind of pumps his fist to make sure the other guy knows that he's, he's uh, getting one on his enemy, right? Well, one night an angel came to one of the shopkeepers and said, I'm going to do anything you ask. You ask for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. Just make sure you're aware of this, that whatever I give you, I'm going to give twice as much to the shopkeeper enemy across the street. What do you want? You want money? If you want money, I'll make you very, very wealthy. Just know this, that the shopkeeper enemy is going to have twice as much money as you. You want health? You want long life? I'll give it to you. Just, just so you know, your enemy is going to get twice as much as you. And the shopkeeper kind of went, oh, there's no win. I'm so angry at him. I'm so competitive. There's no win. And he frowned and he thought, he goes, ah. Here's what I asked for. I asked that you make me blind in one eye. <laughs> you laugh because that's a great solution to enemies. You laugh because that's partly true. I mean, the reality of it is we have a list of people that we just don't want to like. We're not going to like. And Jesus says, here's, here's the deal. I want you to love your enemy. It's scandalous for that reason, because it isn't in us. I learned this lesson when I was young, um, many ways, but this one particular one I'm going to share with you. I uh, grew up in a pastor's home, very conservative pastor's home, high, high, high level of discipline, daily discipline. Um, it wasn't my fault either. Um, but they had a no-fight policy. And I, I believed it, not because it made any sense to me, but because my dad would defend it and, you know, he wins. I was never going to cross him. But I, I was a kid that we just moved from West Texas. I had the Texas draw, and I was a pastor's kid, so, man, I was a nerd, and I didn't fit in. I had, I had nothing going for me. We moved from a West Texas neighborhood to a New Mexico, Santa Fe neighborhood, and, and I was the only one like me. And I was picked on, just picked on, you know, nothing, nothing severe, but enough to drive me nuts and to make a bunch of enemies. And I would go home and go, there's something wrong with this no fight policy. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work because they're not going away. They're going to keep coming. 
And it was a constant struggle for us. And the, the, the church that my dad pastored was like on a corner. And on the other side of the corner was the school that I went to. On the other side of the, of the church was the parsonage, the, the house the church let us live in. So my whole world was in like a block, okay? And, and there was a big lawn in front of the church that my dad ministered at. And every day I'd walk home from school and pass that lawn to my house. Well, it was a regular occurrence where I'd get jumped in that, in that lawn. And this one day, um, and I can't remember how long it had gone on, I got jumped by five guys, and they took turns spitting, like long spit. Yeah, it's gross. It's just like, um, this is enough, right? And they would just spit in my face, and I was so angry, but I could not break the command, do not retaliate. Because I knew dad would retaliate, and it wasn't, it wasn't going to be good for me. So I went home, and I still have this. It's like burned in my mind. I ran in the back door, and my mom was at the washing machine. And her back was to me, and she kept working. She wasn't going to stop working. And she's a little chick, right? She's like 5'2", even on a good day. And, and, but she's, she's feisty and aggressive and tough. You know, she's, she's a tough, tough chick. Anyway, I remember right behind her going, Mom, they jumped me. They, they took turns, spit in my face. You've got to let me retaliate. You've got to let me strike back or whatever. And I can't remember what a 9-year-old would say. I was pretty upset. She turned around. She was mad. Her face was red. And she started wagging her finger at me. She said, all right, you go fight. You go fight. But if you lose, you're going to get punished. <laughs> I swear that's true. I mean, it's true. And, and for whatever reason at the moment, I went, yeah, wait, wait. This is, something's wrong with this scenario. Five on one, I'm going to lose. Twice. So I, did, I wasn't going to tell the rest of the story. It's an amazing story, but it tells you the heart the darkness, even of a nine-year-old. So I, okay, we can fight. So I set up the fight with this guy. His name was Patrick. And I said, let's take him one, on, one at a time, please. And so we we're going to meet in front of the church lawn. We lived on a, a little street called San Juan. Across one, one block away was Sirius Road. If you know anything about Santa Fe, it's the busiest street in New Mexico. Like, it should be a four-lane highway. It's a two-lane street. He's driving his bike across the street, and he gets hit by a car. Yeah, you, the, the girls did that the same thing in the last hour. They just, it's, he got hit and hit pretty severely, broke both his legs. I never saw him again. But I wanted, I, I felt ripped off. I, I felt like I wanted, I wanted to run out in the street and go, you're lucky a car hit you. I'm, I'm nine years old. That's how deep this stuff is rooted in who we are as people competitive and pride and you've wronged me and there's justice and I get, to, I get to exact it. That's fair, right? Those are things that happen in us. The reality that Jesus lays out here in verse 43 through 48 is scandalous because it's impossible. Apart from God-sized power enabling us, you can't do it, right? This is, this is tough, people. This is not like an, an abstract, faceless enemy you don't know. Picture the person who intentionally hurts you. Got him? The person who knows what they're doing and does it anyway. That's the person Jesus says to love. It's impossible unless God doesn't get in and fan the ability. He gives the grace to do this. It's, a, it's an impossible God-sized problem. Let's unpack it and read it together and start dialoguing a little bit. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said... Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 
He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, before we get to the practical side of, of loving enemies, there seems to be, in verse 45, if you were paying attention, a doctrinal problem. Did you see it? Here's what it seems to say. Let's read it again, just so we get it. He says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. It seems to say, if just at first glance, that our sonship, our eternal destiny is directly connected to how good or how well we love our enemies, right? At first glance. And if you read verse 48, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you end up with some kind of rendering like this, that love your enemy perfectly, and then you can enter into heaven. He will be your Father. Now, if you are aware of the gospel, you're going, no, that's not what it says. Let's, let's unpack what Jesus means here a little bit. There's two particular statements in the Sermon on the Mount that help us understand and decipher verse 45. One of them is in chapter 5, verse 16, if you'd turn over there with me. It's that passage where Jesus is commanding his disciples to let their light shine before men, right? And this is what it says, verses 14 through 16. You are a light of, light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I want you to notice two things in this passage. The first one is that Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he refers to God as their Father. Not he will be your Father, but present tense is your Father. That's the first thing. The second thing I want you to notice about that passage is that when people see the good works that they do, like loving your enemy or whatever else Jesus calls them to, they give glory to who? They give glory to God. Why is that? Because the father is enabling his children to do the impossible, the spiritually tall and undoable on our own. God has to empower believers to do anything that glorifies him. Fair? Yeah? Shake your head. Amen. Anything will help. There you go. Good. So if we did good works, if we just flip it, if we did good works, for him to become our father, then the world could notice our good works and give glory to who? Us. It would be totally backwards. He is described as the father who gets glory from the things the father does through his children. Do you see? That's what that passage is all about. Light coming out of his children that loves enemies reflects on the father. Because he is the one calling and enabling through grace and mercy the ability to do the scandalous. Does that make sense? Okay, there's a second passage um, that we need to look at, and that is in Matthew 7, towards the end of this Sermon on the Mount. It's the passage where Jesus refers to good, free, good trees, good fruit, and, and so forth. Verses 16 and 17. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, and a bad tree bears bad fruit. Jesus' point here in this passage, as he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, is that you don't produce the fruit of love in order to become a good tree. You don't hang fruit on a dead tree and then become living. His point is that you have to be a good tree to see good fruit come out of it. So let's back up a little bit and stuff we've talked about in the last year over and over again. 
God moves on dark, sinning hearts. The essence of the gospel is that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. You are hopeless, helpless, clueless, and dead in your sins. That's the gospel. You can't do anything. There is no self-help. There isn't any adjustments you can make. There's no religion you can do. There's no knowledge you can know. There's nothing you personally can do to change your position or your condition unless the Father doesn't dive into time and space and change your heart and your want to. Everyone understand? That's the gospel. You can say, I don't believe it, but that's the gospel. The gospel is you can't. You can't do anything. That God moves on a sinner and you become a child of, of God. That the Bible describes is with a new heart and a new mind and, and new passions. And you're called a new creature. You're a people belonging to God, Peter says in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. The possession of God. You become his child when God acts on you. In other words, we become a good tree by the work of God. And the good fruit that comes off of us is inevitable because he makes us a good tree. Get it? As opposed to reading this passage and go, you know what? I, I need to do good stuff. I need to hang good fruit so that someone can see I'm a good tree, and that's totally anti-gospel. It's a lie. You can't. You can't do anything, Isaiah says, your righteous deeds. The best you offer is like filthy rags to the standard of holiness in God's mind. You can't do it. You will fall short. That's the reality. God has to change you from death to life. You become, in essence, and using this analogy, a good tree. Not on your own goodness, but goodness granted you, to you by faith in, in Christ alone. And off of that tree, 100% guaranteed, inevitable, can't stop it, is good fruit. Not everything, not all the time, not perfectly, but good fruit. The stuff you couldn't do, it's going to start happening in your life. You'll be transformed from death to life. You'll become little Christ's. You will follow things you didn't follow. You'll remember things you didn't remember. You'll care for people you didn't care for. You will love your enemy. And just keep adding all that stuff to it. The gospel makes people different. And so what looks like Mount Everest, I can't get there. It won't happen. Jesus says, of course it will happen. You'll be like the Father. Love your enemies. Back to verse 45 of, of, of chapter 5. Let me paraphrase it. Let me read it and then paraphrase it. He says... Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. The paraphrase goes something like this. Loving our enemies shows that God has already become our Father. And the only reason we're able to love our enemies is because he first loved us. Amen? That's the source. Let me make one more point about this particular verse, or maybe struggle if you're reading it, um, based on other texts in the sermon um, in other places, first of all, the Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter three, or chapter five, verse three, with these words, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Fair? Jesus says, when he starts talking about gospel anything, he says, only the spiritually bankrupt get into my heaven. Not the self-sufficient, not the sort of okay, not the ones who are better than others, not the ones who can compare horizontally pretty well and stack up towards people, the people who are spiritually bankrupt, impoverished, who have nothing to offer. They're the ones who receive life. They're the ones who receive power. 
Jesus, in Mark chapter 10, verse 15, he makes another statement towards this end. He says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. His point is, not only is the kingdom only available to the poor, they're spiritually bankrupt, but it's, it's a gift to the incapable. It's a gift to the weak and the not self-sufficient. Mark chapter 2, he adds and he says this, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. So in essence of all these passages, Jesus says the kingdom only belongs to the poor. The kingdom of God only belongs to the helpless and the, the childlike and the sick and the sinner. Nobody else gets in. Good people don't make it. People who assess themselves and say, there's something in me that God should find favor in, they can't make it. They can't get there. Broken people, incapable people, weak people, poor people, childlike people, people who know they're a sinner, make it into heaven, who recognize their need. The Christian life doesn't start by measuring ourselves and trying to measure up. It starts by realizing we don't. We don't measure up at all. And so the thrust of all of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament is that you can't. Remember what he says? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. You can't be good enough. You can't be religious enough. You can't be pure enough. You can't love enough. You can't believe enough. There's nothing you can do. You can't do anything. So when Jesus says in verse 45, right, and 44, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of the Father. He's saying, listen, the, you're, this exposes your inability and your need for a father. You're, the Father is the source of these commandments. His love poured out on us enables us to love like Christ and to love the, the unlovely. Let's get to the practical side of this passage with the time we have left. Verse 43. Let's answer this question. Who is our enemy? Jesus starts out with, you've heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He's referring to um, the rabbi, the rabbinical teaching, and the pharisaical teaching of the day that was somewhat anchored to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 said this, love your neighbor as yourself. These, these rabbis would teach, love your neighbor, and because... We get to determine who our neighbor is, therefore we hate everybody else. They took out the love as yourself, and so they did a, an addition and a subtraction in the commandment and taught their people that way. And so when Jesus brings this up, he's talking about something everyone was clearly aware of. This was the culture. This is what we know. This is what we're taught. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And everyone had a list of both. It was very crystal for the, for the Hebrews, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I want to show you a passage in Luke chapter 10 that specifically deals with the question or answering the question of this neighbor. Who's my neighbor? And Jesus says this in, in chapter 10 of, of Luke um, to make a point. I think it's page 564 if you have one of the Bibles we gave you. He was asked a question by the expert of, a law, of the law. Who is my neighbor? And it's very, very interesting and revealing what Jesus says. On verse 25, he says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. 
Jesus asks a good question in return. What's written in the law? And the guy has a great answer. Verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He got it right. Whatever was twisted before, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, he said it from Leviticus 19. And Jesus says, you've, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But to justify himself, this, this expert in the law says, well, hey, wait a minute, who's, who's my neighbor? Just so we can clarify, because I still think I have a little bit of that culture in me, a little bit of that teaching in me, that I've got a good list of my neighbors, and i got a good list of my enemies. Who's my neighbor? And we know this story. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and when he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on him. Then he, made the man, uh, then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And you know what the expert said. So the one who showed mercy. Jesus confronted the norm, the cultural norm of that day. The Hebrews in that day had two basic categories of enemies. Everyone Gentile... <laughs> And tax gatherers. Now, they had their own personal ones. Everyone had people who offended them. But the ones that were universally, basically true of everyone was like, we don't, we, we're enemies with Gentiles. And the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were considered almost worse. And so there was bad blood between them. Jesus shares this story that's very scandalous. Wait a minute. You mean the religious elite, the Levite and the priest, they weren't merciful? And this, this reject enemy of ours, he was? The, the, the answer was apparent. An obvious and inescapable. This one. This one is a neighbor to that one. And it exposes a truth here. Jesus teaches here that there aren't two commandments. To love your neighbor and to love your enemy. There's one. And it is that everyone is our neighbor. He's including everyone in on the story. We don't have the right to determine a list of who's in and who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who's good, who's bad. We don't do that. The, the people are our neighbors according to the scripture. He illustrates everyone is. And sometimes, and we have to be honest about this, sometimes we have enemies we don't even know and have never met. It could be a racial thing. It could be a religious thing. It could be a cultural thing. It doesn't matter. We've got, a, we've got in our mind people I don't prefer, people I don't enjoy, people I don't want to see, and we don't have a clue who they are, and we don't know their names. Fair? That happens to all people. That's, that's where racism comes from. But there is some practicality to this passage because Jesus mentions things that are personal. As you can see with me in verse 44, he talks about those who persecute you. He goes, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So who is your enemy? Clearly, it include those people who are out to get you. This is where we feel like we have a right to create that list of enemies. These people hurt me. So therefore, I have a right to put them in a do not touch category. Like they're bad people. They make life hard for you or they, they want to do harm to you. They want to slander you. They, they want to burn you in a business deal. Or they might just not like you and they tell other people they don't like you. And so you, you return fire mutually not liking them. We all do it. 
These people have made it personal. And Jesus says, they've, they've, they've persecuted you. Now, there's a version of persecution that has to do with loving Jesus that we, we endure. But most Americans don't struggle with that. No one's going to walk in here in a minute with a gun asking you to profess Christ or not. Most of us, it's like just a personal thing. At odds, can be anybody. Fair? My, my guess is that you have somebody in your mind, either that you currently have in that bucket or somebody that has been. So Jesus says, here's who I want you to love, that guy. The ones who made it personal. The ones who are really in your face about it. I, I have to tell you, I've got a lot of illustrations um, that come to mind when I think about this, but there are, there are times where um, you don't even have the privilege of knowing who they are. Uh, about eight years ago, uh, someone sent a 12-page letter to the elders about me. No name. No, no intent to try to dialogue or help me, but just to basically make... I, I was guilty of everything, but I think the Lincoln assassination, I think, in that letter. Um, I was responsible for every bad thing um, you can imagine. And, and uh, it's not that, it's not that uh, people don't have a right to make observations, but the way they go about it wasn't intended to dialogue or help. or They were just trying to undermine, do damage, ruin reputation. You know what I'm saying? And so those are people I don't even have a face for, but, but I'm, not, I'm not immune to wanting a piece of that, you know? I'm not immune to saying just one time, just give me one shot. <laughs> we all have it in us. But who is that person to you? The, the word persecute means to pursue with harmful intentions. Now, you get to define what harmful is, but most of us know what it feels like to be harmed. And, and so, therefore, it is so like man to put them in the enemy category. But, Jesus goes on, and our enemies, our opposers, are less than obvious sometimes because in, the, in verse 45, in describing how, how gracious the Father is, in describing how benevolent the Father is, he talks about the Son rising on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We have our categories of the evil and the unrighteous. Fair? They might not have made it personal. They might not have attacked you individually, but they're the bad people. And they can live in your house sometimes. Rebellious kids get this all the time. They're really, really hard. They don't respect. They don't honor authority. They don't love Jesus. They don't obey the rules of the house. Boom. An angry husband. A wife who doesn't, who doesn't respect. An unfair employer. Those are people you look at and go, their actions are evil, so they're not going to get my best. There is another... Um, truth that Jesus shares in verse 46, and it's a real simple category. So I've given you those who persecute you, so it's personal. Those who are just evil, who do bad things, who make life miserable from that angle. But then verse 46, he's making a point about loving our enemies. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? The implication is the people I want you to love are the people who don't love you. Get it? So persecutors, evil, unrighteous, and the people who don't love you, that's your, that's your enemy list. That you have a natural tendency to go, ah, I'm going to withhold grace. Now, I have to confess, and you're going to get a lot of transparency in this message. I'm going to confess to you, this one's tough for me. I, I can be pretty good at keeping a lot of tension existing between me and people who don't love me. I, I can endure. I'm patient. 
I, that's wrong. It's not a spiritual attribute. I'm just, I'm just competitive. In my flesh, in my sinful flesh, I can keep a lot of tension going. Um, some people have a, an agreeable, friendly, likable, easy personality. Like when I think those phrases, I think Tyler Johnson. You know what I'm saying? Who doesn't like him? Sometimes it makes me mad. He's the, he's the greatest guy in the world. Everybody likes him. And, and I, on the other hand, um, I'm one of those people who isn't easy, I think. I've learned that over the years. I think, I think sometimes I'm mis, misrepresented, but, but either way, it's true. And a couple years ago, well, more than 12 years ago, I was walking across campus. Well, I'll tell you the first part of the story. I had a, a gentleman confront me about being unloving and unfriendly, and I said, oh, my gosh, what did I do? And he said, well, I was walking across campus, and I waved at you, and you didn't wave back. <laughs> and and uh, I, I don't do that. Well, I'm blind. I can see the first two rows. That's one. And the other thing is I'm driven, and I've got my head down thinking all the time, and I suppose that can happen, but I would never not wave to somebody waving at me. So I, I, I get it. Some people are just more that type, and I'm that type probably if I'm being really honest, um, that... That people who just say, I don't, I don't necessarily love you. And I can just go, whatever. Okay. I'm, I'm all right with that. And that's not going to help me do this. Fair? I can't just create a list of people, eh, whatever. You had your shot to love me. <laughs> the point of verses 46 and 47 seems to be don't stop loving. Don't stop loving the person who offends you. Don't stop loving the person who doesn't like you. Don't stop loving the person who personally hurts you. Don't stop loving the person who frustrates you. Don't stop loving the person who makes you angry or gets angry at you. Don't stop loving the person that hates what you love or the person who is different than you or the person who speaks bad of you or slanders about you. Don't ever stop loving because our Father doesn't do that. He never quits, does he? The example, the whole point of the passage is, in essence, we could rewrite it like this. If you look at the beginning of verse 45, it says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father. Maybe a more precise writing would be so that you can be like your Father. He is the, the inclusive one. He is the loving one in spite of all sorts of opposition. And I, I want to prove my point, and I'm sure you already know this, and you don't have to turn there, but I want to read a passage in, in Romans chapter 5 that is dealing with the spiritual distance and animosity that exists between us and our creator, okay? And here's what Paul writer says to us about how that's been resolved and the version in which God has chosen to resolve it. He says this, you see, at just the right time, when you were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Church, do you get that, what I just read to you? I want you to get the point of this, this 
unbelievable passage. There is a serious problem that exists between sinful man and the heart of God. It is that we are not just unconscious about our rebellion. We're aggressive about it. So much so that the scriptures describe us as at war, enemies of God. We're not just dead spiritually laying out. We're dead active, shaking our dead fists at a living God. That's our condition. We're at war with him and God peels back the war and he pushes back our hands and draws us close. The scriptures make it clear that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. There's not a single person sitting here, not anybody who's ever lived who didn't need the Holy Spirit to dive into time and space and work on you, draw you, change you, make you live. And when he makes you live, when he changes your soul, when he takes you from death to life, man, all sorts of stuff starts happening in it, right? We've got a, a spiritual condition that's far worse than we ever dreamed. But I want to read to you another one that's a motivation. Both of these things just drive me. One is that God chose to love sacrificially on my behalf when I was in a stubborn warfare with him. But he uses a, par- a parable in, in Matthew chapter 18. You don't have to turn there. But Matthew 18 is, is famous and familiar because it tells us how to respond to sinners who sin against us, right? But there is a second part to this when Jesus shares the parable of the unmerciful servant. I won't take the time to read it. But Peter starts out this dialogue by saying, how many times should I forgive? In essence, we could rewrite the question. How much source is there for forgiveness? So Jesus tells this story. There was this king, and there were servants. And this king, um, he called debts due on his servants. And so this servant came before him, and the king said, what do you owe me? And the, the, the clear indication is that he owes an unpayable debt. In our vernacular, it'd be millions and millions of dollars. This guy has a debt to the king he can't pay back. And the king, and the, the guy says, have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. I'll pay you back. And the king just, just granted him freedom from his debt. He expunged the debt and said, listen, you're free. The servant goes away. First thing he does is find a, a fellow servant who owes him the equivalent of a happy meal. Okay? Three, four bucks. He says, wait a minute. You owe me. Pay up. The guy does the same thing this servant did and says, listen, have mercy on me. Give me a chance. Give me some time. I'll pay you back. Well, the servant who was forgiven an unpayable debt said, no, no, you're going to jail. Well, the rest of the servants knew that that was really jacked up. And so he said to the king, listen, you, the one you forgave, the unpayable, can't ever pay it back, forever debt. He's holding this guy hostage for the equivalent of a, a happy meal. And you know the rest of the story, right? The king pulls a servant and says, what, what, what? I don't get this. So you had debt this big, and I wiped it away. And he had debt this big, you had him thrown in jail. The reason why he tells the passage, and it's on the hindsight of, of the, dealing with your brother in sin, church, we have enough resource to forgive anybody. You don't deserve peace in life. You don't deserve heaven. You don't deserve grace and mercy. You don't deserve salvation. You are at war with God. Your thoughts were continually about yourself and sin always, all the time. You can't fix your own problem. You can't be good enough. You have offended a holy God. His standard is insurmountable. You can't do it. And he gives you freedom. And he says, now how is it that I give you everything, like eternal life and peace and relationship and everything else, and you're holding each other hostage over Happy Meals? How in the heck does that happen? You get it? 
The point of the passage over and over again is Jesus saying, listen, I'm your father. Love your enemies. I do. I'm your father. Follow my lead. The power comes from me. Now, do you have that person in your mind? Do you got the people in your mind? You know that I, I was told last hour that the lady ran out of here crying. And it could have been that message was so bad. My, my guess is it was, it was at home. So who, who's crossed a line that you can never, ever get back in with? Who's hurt you at such a high level you can never forgive and love? The person you've written off. Here's why this passage is scandalous. Here's why it's a hard saying of Jesus, because the gospel you received confronts you. You cannot hold on to grudges and bitterness when you've received so much mercy. Amen? When the debt that we have built up and the offense that we have caused against God has been erased, we forgive because we've been forgiven. We, we give away mercy because we've received mercy. And just a side note, too, by the way, I, I, I've talked to enough people to know maybe some of the motives behind why we hold grudges and why we're bitter and why we won't forgive and why we won't love. But you make a huge mistake if you think that the enemies you keep and the enemies you hate somehow that it protects you, keeps them from hurting you again, or punishes them. It makes it right. It doesn't make it right and it doesn't protect you. It's just the opposite. When we hold a list of people that have offended us, enemies, and we hold grudges and bitterness, it's just the opposite. We're the one in bondage. We're the one being held with no peace. My guess is the woman who walked out of here crying was because her, all she lives for is to maintain that person who's wounded her, but to give it away. Peace doesn't look like that. Forgive and be free of it. The word forgive means release. It means to give up resentment, release it. A lot of us have uh, not only files on people, but open files on people that we use. I see it a lot in marriage counseling. You get a couple of people who've been married for a while, they get in a room and they go, we don't like each other. And they get that little fictitious file out and they open it up and go, <clears throat> exhibit A. And they go down. It doesn't matter if we've talked about this. It doesn't matter if someone said, I'm sorry, and someone said, I forgive you. It doesn't matter. It goes in the file. If needed, break glass. That's what we do. We pull it out and beat each other with it. And the point of forgiveness, church, just like Psalm 103 talks about the forgiveness of sinners who are at war with him, as far as the east is from the west, so far he's removed their sin from us. He remembers it what? No more. Release it. Release it, let it go, and be free because of how much freedom you've received. It's scandalous because it's so not like us, but it is like our Father. Forgiveness is the attitude of our Father. So can I finish with a couple of so what's? Be honest about your enemies. You might be sitting here scratching your head for that person who's got real personal He's got your picture on the refrigerator with a bunch of darts in it. That's not the kind of enemy I'm only thinking about. These are the subtle ones, the ones that might not have faces. This could be a racial thing. This could be a cultural thing. This could be whatever. You've got enemies you don't even know. Just be honest, okay? It starts by cleaning the deck and just going, okay, I struggle with X. Just be honest. 
Here's the second thing I want you to do, and that is to, and, and it sounds a little bigger than I mean it, but act like your father. Do it for him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you one story of, of the reason why. When I first got married, my wife and I didn't hardly know each other. We dated for about a month, got married, and you can just pick the rest of it, right? Hell on earth for two years after that. We, we did not get along. We would never get divorced, wouldn't use the D word because we were too stubborn. It was for the wrong reasons. Um, but we didn't like each other and didn't like our marriage. Well, in the midst of us struggling through figuring out the immaturities and what we got to know and don't know and everything else, um, we were living with her brother. Just, just a side note tip, don't live with family. But anyway, um, <laughs> he was very observant and very judgmental of our failures as a couple. So I got a call one day and he said, hey, I need to talk to you. So I show up and it's him at the head of the table and his wife at the other side and my wife at the other side and he had a legal pad and just began to tell me you know, I was everything, every bad thing on the planet. And I remember sitting there going, wait, something's wrong about this story. Like, you could have come to me. And I looked at my wife and go, you sh- are we on the same team here? What's, what's going on? And I, I just, every bit of competitive, resent, hate, this guy's a jerk, just, I built, I built a monument to it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like I built walls, I planted grass, it was going to be in my life forever. And about five years later, I was sitting in a sermon, and my dad was preaching. And he was some, I don't even know what he was preaching, but somewhere he got close to this. And I was sitting in the sermon, and I'm convicted. What do I do now? And the only name that came was my brother-in-law. And, you know, you have, maybe you're having those moments now, too, where you go, no, no. Clearly, that's not from the Lord, because after all, I've, I've planted grass, and I want that. <laughs> But it was, and so I went home, and I looked at my wife, and I go, I got to call him. Let's call his name Joe. His name's not Joe, but I said, I got to call Joe. Really? She was shocked. So I went in the bedroom, closed the door, and I called him. I go, hey, uh, it's Tim. Um, I was sitting in the service today, and the Holy Spirit just punched me in the gut. I've been resenting you and bitter at you. You've been an enemy of mine. I haven't been loving. And I just want to ask your forgiveness and see if we can be restored. And, and uh, he said, um, Good. Glad to see you come to your senses. <laughs> yeah. I said that for one reason. Um, sometimes after you begin to, to love your enemies, they still will hate you. It doesn't matter. The reason why we do what we do is not because either one of us deserve it. The reason why we do it is because he's called us to it and we've received such great gifts from him. Right? There's one reason to do anything. It's the glory of God, not because I want him to like me or not because the ultimate end is that we're going to live happily ever after. It never happened. All I had to do was obey. I, I don't want to think about it anymore. I don't want to plant flowers in front of that bitter house anymore. I, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm releasing it. I'm gone. And, and to be honest with you, I'm going to just be really confessed. When he said those words, everything in me went right back up again. And I had to talk myself out of it like, wait a minute, why did I go here in the first place? Did I go here thinking he would love me more because I did this? Or did I did it because the Spirit convicted me to do it, right? See, we've got lists of people that we go, nah, 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 nah. They don't deserve my love. They don't deserve my attention. Just grab a mirror. Neither do you. So do it for him. You need to pray like crazy for the power to do it because the only way to do this is supernatural. It isn't natural. It's scandalous because it requires the power of God. And then let it go. I told you this before, but I'm going to repeat it. 
Let it go and be free. Be free of harboring all these enemies that you have to maintain and watch out what you say when you see them or how to avoid them or walk around them and all that. Let it go. And, and Jesus gets real specific here in this passage, and he mentions a couple things, and I just want to leave you with them. He told us to pray for him, right? It's really hard to pray, not this kind of prayer. God, destroy them in a fiery crash. Not that kind of prayer. The kind of prayer that says, God, bless them. Encourage them. Um, Take care of them. Provide for them. That kind of praying for your enemies will change your heart. I promise. That's one. Pray for your enemies. And then verse 45 implies benevolence and meeting needs. When Jesus says, doesn't your father reign on the righteous and unrighteous? Doesn't he show son to the evil and the good? Aren't I benevolent to everybody? Aren't I kind? Don't I give to everybody? Yes, is the answer. And he says, be like me. So, Look for ways to meet practical needs and be benevolent. And then one last thing. Verse 47 says, and if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that. So the implication is, greet your enemies. Pagans choose which sides they'll talk to, but not God-changed believers. Make sense? So clearly we got to stop and pray now and ask for supernatural strength. For whoever you're thinking about or people you're thinking about right now to walk out of here and obey him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, always thank you that you, never, you don't treat us as our sins deserve. You could. You could grow impatient with our act, our perpetual wanderings and failures, but you don't. Your love and kindness and mercy forever faithful. And so, God, we see a passage like this. And it seems like such a tall order, and it, and it is in the flesh. But through your power, it's, it's, it's not only possible, it's inevitable. You can grant us the grace to forgive those who hurt us, forgive those that are not like us, forgive those people that we've got classified as enemies. Father, would you help us do that? I pray for all of my brothers and sisters in this room and in the conference center. God, would you help us not just hear the name of the person but walk in obedience, trusting you that it's, there's freedom on our end and, and there's obedience. And so, God, we, we pray for that supernatural power that you might get all glory and praise. Amen. Amen.